What a gift to have the orchestra with us this morning. Kathy told me, actually, this is only about a fourth of the orchestra, um, but this is my first time to hear you all, and what a gift it is to have you in worship. Thank you. I'm going to be reading from Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. So remember that once you were Gentiles by physical descent, who were called uncircumcised by Jews who are physically circumcised. At that time, you were without Christ. You were aliens rather than citizens of Israel and strangers to the covenants of God's promise. In this world, you had no hope and no God. But now, thanks to Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that he could create one new person out of the two groups, making peace. He reconciled them both as one body to God by the cross, which ended the hostility to God. When he came, he announced good news of peace to you who were far away from God and to those who were near. We both have access to God through Christ by one spirit. So now you are no longer strangers or aliens. Rather, you are fellow citizens with God's people. You belong to God's household. As God's household, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is joined together in him, and it grows into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. Christ is building you into a place where God lives through the Spirit. Friends, this is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this place and in all places be found pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. An article on CNN.com caught my attention recently with a headline that read, what people talk about before they die. Hospice chaplain Carrie Egan writes about the experience she had as a student at Harvard Divinity School when she had just started working as a student chaplain at a cancer hospital. One day, one of her professors stopped her in the hallway at Harvard and asked how it was going and what she did from day to day as a student chaplain. She says, I was 26 years old at the time, and to be honest, I was still learning exactly what a chaplain did. But from what I had figured out so far, I told my professor that I really enjoyed my conversations with my patients, and that most of my time was spent talking with them. That's what you do every day, he said? You talk to your patients? Well, tell me, what do people who are sick and dying want to talk to the student chaplain about? I thought about it for a moment, and she realized that mostly they talk about their families. The professor asked, do you talk about God? Um, not always, she said. What about their religion, he asked. Not very often, she responded. What about the meaning of their lives, he asked. 
Sometimes she responded, what about prayer? Do you lead them in prayer or some kind of religious rituals? Well, she hesitated, if that's what they would like, yes, certainly, but not all the time. She felt this sense of judgment creeping into her professor's voice as he said condescendingly, so you just sit around and talk with people about their families. Well, they talk, she said. I mostly listen. She could tell that the professor was not at all satisfied with her answer, and he walked away. Well, about a week later, the professor brought up their conversation in class. And with Carrie sitting right there in the classroom, he made fun of this interaction with her in the hallway. He said, and that was the student's understanding of faith. That was as deep as this person's spiritual life went talking about other people's families. The professor went on to say that if he were ever sick in the hospital, if he were dying, the last person he would want to see is some Harvard Divinity School student wanting to talk to him about his family. The other students laughed along at the shallowness of the student. Carrie said, my body went numb with shame. At the time, I thought that maybe... If I were a better chaplain, I would know how to talk to people about bigger spiritual questions. Maybe if dying people met with good, more experienced chaplains, then they would talk about God. And yet today, she says, 13 years later, I am now a hospice chaplain. I visit with people who are dying every day. And if you were to ask me the same question, what do people who are sick and dying talk about, without hesitation or uncertainty, I would give you the same answer. In my experience, she says, mostly they talk to me about their families. They talk to me about the love they felt and the love they gave. Often they talk about the love they did not receive the love that they did not know how to offer, the love they withheld, or maybe the love they never felt from ones they should have loved unconditionally. Sometimes that love is not only imperfect, sometimes it's missing entirely because monstrous things can happen in families, she says. Too often patients tell me what it feels like when the person you love hurts you. They tell me what it feels like to know that you are utterly unwanted by your parents. They tell me what it feels like to be the target of someone's rage. They tell me what it feels like to know that you abandoned your children, that your drinking destroyed your family, or that you failed to care for those who needed you. But even in those cases, she says, I'm always amazed at the strength and resilience of the human soul. People who did not know love and their families know that they should have been loved. They know something was missing and what they deserved. She concludes, we don't learn the meaning of our lives by discussing it. It's not always found in books or lecture halls or even churches, synagogues, or mosques. It's discovered through these actions of love. We don't live our lives in our heads, in theologies or theories. We live our lives in families, whether they be the families we are born into, the families we create, the families we make through people we choose as partners and friends. If God is love, 
And if we believe that to be true, then we learn about God when we learn about love. The first and usually the last classroom of love, she says, is the family. So with these words from a chaplain's experience in mind, this morning I would like to suggest that Highland is also a classroom of love. That the church and this church is a chosen family we create, sharing life together as an imperfect and flawed but beautiful expression of God's love for all people with no exceptions. And my hope for us is to fully and faithfully live into this identity as the family of God in this place. Now, I recognize that just the word family is probably loaded with as many different emotions as there are people in this room today and those of you watching on live stream. You may think, I don't want church to be anything like the family that I've experienced. And the hard truth is that all throughout scripture, we read some pretty awful stories about what it can look like to be family together, don't we? I mean, the very first family is no exception. Both Adam and Eve eat the fruit and try to avoid responsibility for it. Then one of their sons murders the other and becomes fugitive. Abraham is willing to sacrifice his own son Isaac, and that's not to mention all the craziness that happens with Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael, somehow part of this painful and messy family tree. Isaac and Rebekah have twin boys, Jacob and Esau, but Jacob tricks his brother Esau into giving him his inheritance along with his mom's help. So Esau sets out to kill him. Joseph is sold to a band of Egyptian slave traders by his very own brothers who make his parents believe that he is dead. And you all know that the list goes on and on. I guarantee you that if you pull out your Bible in your pews today and open it up to any page, you will find mention of a pretty messed up family. In her book, Flawed Families of the Bible, Diana Garland writes, the stories of families in our Bible are raw and uncensored. Bitter reminders of how awful family life can become. Through the ancient families of the Bible, Though they lived in a distant time in a far-off place with social customs and rules that sometimes mystify us, when we peel back the surface-level differences, we discover that people and their family problems seem not to have changed that much at all. Once we begin to understand them, their stories and experiences seem to mirror our own. Because all families and all families in ancient Israel are flawed by division, physical and emotional violence, infidelity, petty jealousies, and mean-spiritedness. They are far from perfect. Yet it is exactly in those flawed places that the Spirit of God moves and where we can catch glimpses of grace. And that's what I hope for for us here at Highland. We're certainly not going to live up to being the picture-perfect family. It doesn't exist, friends. Even the best churches get messy and complicated, and Highland is no exception to that. We all know full well. But my hope is that we can strive to be a different kind of family than some of us have experienced in this life. 
to be an imperfect family of God in this place where we seek to learn from, give to, and receive from one another, and in so doing where we can experience the depth of God's love and catch glimpses of God's grace. Because all throughout scripture, I believe that we also see the spirit of God working to redeem what it means to be family. We see Jesus telling this ragtag group of disciples who have begun following him to become family to one another. We hear Jesus' last words on the cross, calling out to those who are still with him to be a new kind of family after he is gone. These people for whom Jesus has given his life and love are now commanded to love each other in the same way. And in today's text in Ephesians, we are reminded that in Christ, none of us is stranger or alien to one another because we are fellow citizens with God's people and we belong to this big, beautiful, messy, wonderful family of God. I don't know about you all, but I don't really want to pastor a church that feels like a club or a social organization I want to pastor a church where we know and are known by one another, where we share life together, where we are honest about our stories, where we love each other, even when it's hard, even when that gets messy, where we have conflict with one another and learn to disagree, and where we learn to forgive and to be forgiven, where we become better versions of ourselves together than the chances are any of us could ever become on our own. Now, you might say, Mary Alice, that sounds nice, but Highland has grown so much over the years. We have three different worship services over the weekend. We can't possibly know everyone in that way. And I absolutely agree. I was talking to Chris Gamble, a friend of mine who has also worked as a consultant with Highland through the Center for Congregational Health, and he says, research shows that each of us can only maintain up to 150 meaningful relationships at one time. And that's probably speaking for the extroverts in the room, I would imagine. (laughs) He also says that regardless of the church size, The average church member who is engaged in their church knows about 67 people in that church. It doesn't matter if the church has 150 people or 2,000 people. You can't know everybody, he says. You don't have to, but you do need to know some people. And some people need to know you because each of you brings something to this faith community that would be deeply missing if you were not here. And yet one of the first things the search committee told me and that you have told me throughout the past year is that outside of a Bible study class or a ministry group, a pocket of friends, you don't really know each other. Then you add COVID on top of that and the reality that this summer some of us are seeing each other for the first time in over a year and a half. And some of us still aren't ready to come back, especially with the Delta variant running rampant right now. This is a complex and challenging time to know one another, isn't it? It's why I loved our neighbor groups at Highland so much this past year, because you met people you didn't know otherwise, many of whom lived right around the corner from you. And so I hope we can continue to learn one another's names with our name tags 
to share our stories like Kim Fritchie did so beautifully this morning and to find unique and meaningful ways to create the sense of family and community that extends beyond a Sunday morning hello and into a deeper way of life together. Because if we can't live as an authentic expression of God's love inside these walls, how can we ever begin to live it out there? I'd like to close with a story about Highland that Lula Reynolds shared with me a few months ago. Lula writes, in the 1980s and 90s, for several years I didn't go to church because there didn't seem to be a church that that was the right fit for me. Having been raised as a Southern Baptist and fully involved in church activities, I deeply missed being part of a church. Also in the 1980s, my brother was diagnosed with HIV. At the time, I joined a support group called Mothers and Others. There I found several folks who were so accepting of those who had HIV and AIDS, which was not the common thing at the time. I asked if they knew any churches that might be supportive, and they mentioned Highland, where Chip and Nancy Miller attended. I had heard them speak about their son and thought that if they felt accepted at Highland, maybe I would be too. And so in the late 90s, I began attending Highland and sitting in the very back of the church. But I couldn't believe the welcoming that this church seemed to give. I was skeptical. And so I attended for 10 years, each week sitting at the back and avoiding conversation with others. However, I was amazed when the pastors always remembered my name. Over time, I began to realize that maybe this was a church where I could be accepted for who I am. The pastors continued to support me through my journey with colon cancer and through the death of my brother. But it wasn't until the death of my partner of 38 years in 2009 that I finally became a member of Highland. By this time, I was confident of Highland as a church welcoming all people. But what meant more to me were the notes and cards I received from ordinary members and deacons expressing their sympathy and support. These notes I received were not just simply thinking of you messages, but sincere and heartfelt messages, some of which she still has. She said, I was even amazed that at the end of a church service a while later, Chet Watson came up to me and said, this must be a really difficult time for you. Know that I'm still praying for you. This man that I barely knew, even months later, knew that I was still going through a hard time. That genuine support that I felt convinced me that this church is the real thing. It was family. And it continues to be today. Highland, there are so many more stories I could share with you. So many more stories that you could share with me. And I hope you will. But the point is we have it within us to be this kind of family to one another. In fact, I believe that Highland has the unique capacity to be family for people in ways that few other churches in Louisville are actually willing to do. The question is, are you and I ready to live this out? Because we need you. 
We need all of you. We need one another, and we need what God can do in and through us when we come together as the family of God in this place. If God is love, and we believe that to be true, then we learn about God when we learn about love. The first and usually the last classroom of love is the family. Highland, may we strive to be that kind of family with one another. Amen.